Hello and welcome to the very first OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometrists today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. In our first episode, we'll be discussing myopia management, what it means for practitioners and the evidence base behind it. My name is Kerry Smith-Jones. I'm an independent practitioner in the north of England and I'm IP qualified and I'm also the clinical multimedia editor for Optometry Today. And I'm Ian Beasley, head of education for the AOP and also clinical editor of Optometry Today. The recording of today's podcast took place on the 10th of October 2022. So Kerry, here we are, our very first episode of the OT podcast. Very exciting. I think we've got quite a hot topic to start off with as well, myopia. You're working in practice regularly. So what's what's your experience been like of the whole myopia management journey so far? Well, I'm in independent practice. Prior to the practice I'm currently at, um, I was at a practice that did ortho-K. So by serendipitous happy accident, we were kind of doing myopia management before we really realised we were my latest practice, we, we don't do ortho okay, but we already have some patients that are on my site. I haven't actually fitted one myself yet, so I've, I've done some follow-ups. And we've got a couple of patients uh, here and there on the uh, Myo Smart Lens and also the new Essilor Stelles Lens. So we are currently practicing myopia management and we've got a, a dribble of patients coming through and hopefully uh, we'll surge forward with it over the next few years. I'd say for me, my journey has been a, been a bit different to that. So with impeccable timing, I, I left clinical practice about two and a half years ago, just as everything was warming up in the myopia space. But prior to that, I was dabbling, I suppose, with, with some ortho-K, but also fitting off-label centre distance contact lenses at, at that time. So that probably goes back what, maybe eight, nine years or so. I felt like I had the myopia jigsaw. I'd got some of the pieces in the right order. I'd definitely lost some behind the sofa and then some new pieces kept coming along so I think for me it's uh, can't be the only one that finds this I think it's quite a challenging topic to sort of get to grips with and first of all make that start into the myopia management space but also keep up to date with it so I think it's great that we've got an expert with us today the queen of myopia in the UK in my eyes at least Professor Nicola Logan so welcome Nicola I'm hoping you can help Let's put some of the pieces of this jigsaw together. We've known each other a long time and having done some detailed research in, in the past two or three minutes, I realised that our past first crossed at a time when both Madonna and the Pet Shop Boys were in the charts. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty frightening. But for listeners who are less familiar with your work, I'd just like to do a formal introduction, if that's okay. So you're a professor in optometry and physiological optics at Aston University. And your current research interests include the development, progression, and management of myopia. And this work spans from basic laboratory experimentation and translates through to clinical trials that involve different strategies to slow myopia progression in children. And this runs alongside a clinical service in myopia management. Does that sound about right, Nicola? Yes, that sounds about right. I guess all aspects of myopia I'm pretty much um, interested in. really interested in kind of understanding the mechanisms you know what drives myopia why should an eye that was once emetropic become myopic in the first place and then once it becomes myopic why does it keep progressing you know it happens in in childhood it can happen through teenage years as well and we often see it in young adults 
um, progressing myopia as well. So somebody who stopped growing, why does their eye still continue to grow? So kind of really understanding that and then more recently being involved with ways in which we can intervene and try and slow down that progression of myopia. You know, it, it's a real excitement to now seeing some of that research being translated through to, to clinical practice as well. So take us right back to the beginning then, Nicola, from undergraduate optometry student in the Pet Shop Boys era through to professor. So how did you how did you get started in this this field? I think uh, my interest started way before that. I developed myopia age ten. I was picked up through the school vision screening program that still happened at that you know last year of primary school. And it really kind of started my curiosity in terms of why an eye that was once seemingly healthy and didn't need any sort of visual correction, why it became myopic at that age. And none of the rest of my family needed glasses. So it was a real kind of curiosity for me. And I think really vivid for me and for all my hopes, I think, you know, getting that first pair of glasses, looking out the window and seeing the detail of those leaves on the tree, for example, you know, to me, a, a simple pair of glasses, how, how could that kind of happen? And that's really where my interest started. And then fast forward to university years, and I think it was year three, and I did my final year elective project with Professor Bernard Gilmartin, who many of you may know has been really eminent in the field of myopia. And that really gave me a great insight into, into research and the questions we could start trying to ask and address within a, a research field. And so after a pre-reg year based in the hospital where, again, research is at the fore of a lot of the work that you're doing, I returned to Aston to take up a PhD under the supervision again of Bernard. And that was funded by a, a College of Optometrists Research Scholarship. And it was really in the field of myopia, looking at kind of differences, especially in anisomyopes, you know, differences between eyes in terms of peripheral fraction and eye shape. And at the time, I can remember going to conferences and people were, you know, why are you interested in, you know, eye shape and what's happening off axis and things? And I was thinking, well, you know, what's driving that growth um, of the eye? And it's been really interesting that, you know, that research has carried on. You know, we still don't have all those answers. And that has been, I dread to think, 20, 30 years um, at least uh, ago when, when I was first started out in that area. You say we haven't got all of the answers, but thinking about what answers we do have, I think something that's that's blatantly obvious is that the prevalence of myopia is is increasing um, at a fairly alarming rate. Um, why is that happening? It does. It's not just uh, restricted to parts of the world like Asia. It's also happening in in the UK, of course. Yes. Yeah. So that prevalence of myopia is certainly increasing, and that's been really well documented through large-scale kind of population-based studies and as you said we see it right across the world but it's been evolving at such a or changing at such a rate that we can't explain it by just genetics you know it's been changing too quickly to be explained by that so people have then been looking at environment and lifestyle and if those are real drivers of it and there's been a really long-held belief um, of that association between near work and myopia, and we can go back hundreds of years and look at kind of textile workers who did lots of really close near work, and they were, you know, had a, a greater prevalence of myopia than, than people who did other types of, of jobs. You know, there's real evidence from East Asian countries, and they look at it you know, over decades. If we go back to the you know 80s, we can see that kind of change over time. And I think people think it's more of a, 
a recent phenomenon in terms of digital lifestyle and that increase through use of you know, computers and smartphones. But it's been happening, that prevalence level has been increasing really before that. Now, whether it's the near work that's driving it or whether it's your lifestyle while you're typically doing near work and being indoors that's driving it, that might be the true answer in terms of, you know, it's that lighting environment, the indoor environment that might be more causative. Can I ask what makes you sway towards the lighting being more a problem than the near work being the problem? Is that an instinct or do you, do you have anything on that yet? I think there's been work shown, um, certainly um, in places like Australia, Singapore, um, the US, for example, that have shown that even if children spend a lot of time doing near work, as long as they spend a certain number of hours outdoors, that seems to negate that effect of the near work. And hence, that's where that thought process comes in terms of some aspect of being outdoors seems to be protective in a way. And certainly the evidence suggests it may delay the onset of myopia, it may not stop it completely happening. But we know if we delay the age of onset, then we might stop that myopia progressing or, or happening and progressing through those years where you get that kind of faster rate of progression. So the later the age of onset of myopia, then you know the rate of progression tends to be a little bit slower. So that's a, a positive thing. The evidence in terms of actually, if you have myopia, does it slow the rate of progression um, if you spend more time outdoors, that evidence is less clear cut. Some suggest maybe, some suggest not. And I guess so many aspects that might be then driving that myopia on may confound that issue. Mm. And do we know yet whether it's because it's a light intensity level outdoors? Is it particular wavelengths? Is it, can you wear sunglasses outdoors and it's still delay the onset? There's so many unknowns about what aspect of being outdoors is really important. And I think there's been lots of work looking at um, you know, the role of dopamine. And we know that being outdoors um, in, in sunlight increases the levels of dopamine. And we know that dopamine regulates the growth of the eye. So the greater the amount of dopamine, the, the slower the growth rate um, of the eye. And so that's one, one factor. We know that the, the differential in lighting levels is so much greater outdoors than indoors. And of course, you know, that spectrum of light is really different indoors and we're missing a lot of that visible spectrum indoors that we get outdoors as well. So people have been looking at different chromatic properties of light, spectral composition and how that might influence it. And I guess it's perhaps not clear cut. We, we also have a very different dioptric environment when we're outdoors compared to our flat screens and, and things that we're looking at inside as well. And again, that may also be a contributory factor. And it may not be just one of those factors that may be a host of them that are contributing towards it. So thinking about that lifestyle advice, we shouldn't be too stressed about wrestling iPads off kids, but we, we should be kicking them in, into the great outdoors. Is that kind of a, a summary of where we're at? And is that the advice you, you're giving to, to parents? And, and if so, how long should their kids spend outside? And how do we manage that in the, in the great British weather? And Are they receptive to that? I think uh, many parents would want you to tell their children to to get off those iPads, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I don't think, you know, they're, they're necessarily the driver of all that myopia that we're seeing there. And certainly in the way children learn now, there's lots of time spent on, on screens, lots of, you know, whether it's iPads or, or computers or a smartphone. We don't want to detract from their kind of learning process either and we need to accept that new technology that's that's around and, and part of our, our life now but I think it is that important you know to get them outdoors 
for some aspects of the day as well. And I think if we look at, you know, many primary school children might walk to school, walk home from school. So it all mounts up. It's kind of cumulative over time. And it's certainly at primary school level, we're sent out at break times and lunch times as well. And that certainly all adds up. And so I guess the evidence is really you know, 90 minutes, two hours a day if you can, you know, but that's kind of spread over that kind of week-long timeline. Thinking about the interventions that we have available now outside of lifestyle, so, so products that are commercially available, have we found the holy grail yet or is there some way to go, do you think? Well, I think none of the interventions that we have, you know, completely stop myopia in its tracks. And I think, you know, what is our endpoint? What, what are we looking for? Do we expect a complete cessation of the myopia? Or do we need to kind of think of you know, an eye in terms of growing? It's If you look at a nematropic child, their eye's still growing through that age range. And that typically won't stop growing to like a mid-teens range. Is it realistic to expect that a child with myopia, that you'll also stop that kind of normal growth within the eye as well? So would we ever get 100% efficacy, for example, with a myopia management intervention? So in, in terms of are we going to see kind of 100% efficacy in terms of slowing myopia progression with, with the interventions we've got? I think you know, what is 100% efficacy? Is that complete cessation of eye growth? But some normal growth might be expected. If we look at emetropes, we still see those eyes and those children still progressing through teenage years in terms of axial elongation. So would we expect to stop that kind of normal elongation in children with myopia as well? And if to do that, we'd need to be seeing that kind of 100% efficacy. So perhaps at best, what we're seeing is reducing that rate of growth in the eye to kind of match what we would expect in an emotropic eye. But what we also see is that data from research is kind of for the average you know, within that cohort of children studied. And we know that some children respond better to interventions than other children, for example. And I think what we're looking for is to try and tease out or can we pinpoint which children a certain intervention might be most effective for. So I think we've still got some way to go in terms of being able to reach that kind of holy grail in terms of complete management of myopia. And I think really what we want to do is really predict the child who is likely to become myopic and intervene before they develop myopia, to stop myopia really developing in the first place. Out of the current myopia interventions that are commercially available in the UK, is there a clear winner? Is one more effective than the other? Certainly in terms of the interventions we have available, whether within the UK or, or beyond that, I don't think there's a clear winner at all. I think you know 1% atropine, does you know pretty much stop myopia progression, but we're not going to put children into one percent atropine for myopia management, given all the side effects you know alongside paralysis of accommodation, large pupil size, and, and photophobia. So that's not a practical way, and you know long term toxic effects you know potentially of one percent atropine. Looking at the options we've got in terms of spectacle, different designs of spectacle lenses, different designs of um, soft contact lenses, orthokeratology. Some people have been using low concentrations of atropine um, within the UK as well. I don't think there's a, a clear hands-down winner at all. They all bring different advantages in terms of how you correct the child and what's suitable for that child and their lifestyle alongside slowing down the progression of myopia. So I think it's a, a considered response in terms of you know, we have a range of interventions that seem 
to be pretty good across the board and what's more appropriate or suitable to that individual child that you've got in the chair. A number of those interventions are contact lens based. What's your experience been like with children? Do they adapt to them well? Do they love or loathe the idea when you suggest contact lenses to them? And how about the parents? What are are their reactions like? So I think fitting uh, contact lenses to, to young children, you know, it's Typically, for many optometrists, it's not been at the forefront of, of what they've typically been doing. So it's a, a younger age range you're fitting. But I think they'll surprise you. you. You often have your expectations as to what they're going to be like. But in reality, you many of them are fearless. They accept it really readily. They take on board your points about hygiene, the importance of washing and drying your hands before even touching or going near those lenses. And they put them in fearlessly. They remove them really well in terms of the vision that they have with those different designs of lenses it is really good and I would expect the same sort of level of visual acuity as they would with a standard single vision lens they may be aware that it's a little bit different but they adapt to it really quickly and certainly within the first couple of days they adapt to it I think it's sometimes the parents that are a bit more reticent thinking their child's not going to be able to manage it and I think in practice what we typically try and do is you know, separate that parent from child slightly. They're still within the same room, but the parent's not hovering over the child when you're trying to, you know, do a teach, a contact lens teach with that child. You know, distract them with questions or questionnaires or, or something else and then concentrate on the child. And I think once the parent sees the child can manage that contact lens handling really well, then they're much more on board and much more comfortable with it. We've certainly had the experience where the parent pops off to the loo and the child has just managed to get the lens out and they were struggling for ages and <laughs> you know, the parent comes back surprised. Oh, you did it. Oh, okay. I think it takes the pressure off as well with like the parent watching and, and things like that. And, you know, I think that you know, a little bit of separation between them is, is a good thing for them. Should practitioners have any concerns about the safety of, of, of fitting contact lenses to children and, and, and at what age should we be thinking about doing it? What's What's realistic? I know it depends on the child, but as, as a starting point, what would you say is a, is a good guide for that? I think certainly um, we're always concerned about safety of, of contact lenses for everybody. And of course, with a, a young child, that might be more paramount in terms of pointing that out and be concerned about it. But certainly our experience shows that those children aren't any more at risk than a, an adult if they follow your advice in terms of, of hygiene and management of those lenses. And if we look at the majority of soft contact lenses that we have for myopia management, the majority of them are on a, a daily disposable modality. And I think that would, you know, if you're fitting a child with myopia management, I always choose something that's, you know, CE mark or intended for that purpose as my first choice. And if you're choosing a contact lens, um, my first choice would be a daily disposable type of contact lens because then you don't have the, the issues of, of cleaning that lens and cleaning a, a lens case alongside it as well. But we've been fitting my sight lenses since you know the last ten years for young children, and we've had people in them for you know eight nine years now, and you know we check the health of their eye regularly. We've often been seeing them every six months, and we haven't picked up any issues related to that. And these lenses are also usually a, a hydrogel lens as well. And I know there's been many people in practice have moved to using the silicon hydrogel lens but these hydrogel lenses have been forming really well on these children's eyes with no you know, ocular health complications. One of the things I struggle a bit with is when do you start when do you stop myopia management? I mean are we at the point where if you've got an emotropic child who shouldn't quite be emotropic they should be long-sighted because they're quite young and you turn around to the corner and the two parents are sat there with you know, thick myopic spectacles on. Do you start that child there and then on myopia management and 
when someone's spectacle prescriptions plateaued and they're sort of 18 years old is it then you then take them out of the myopia management lens those are all really great points and i think everyone kind of you know when do we start when do we stop because you want to kind of you know, set those expectations for the parents as well so they've got some sort of idea as to the length of time a child might be in a, a myopia management intervention so the situation you described there is that a child who's emotropic, but you would like them to be a little bit hyperopic at their age range and, and with the myopic parents. And we certainly know that the child's at high risk of becoming myopic. We have very little evidence at the moment in terms of what to do to intervene um, with those children. And would they be compliant with any sort of optical intervention for that? That's the other query. I think we should certainly have the conversation at that stage and speak to the parents and they're probably well aware that that child's at risk of becoming myopic and talk about lifestyle changes, time outdoors. And then, you know, perhaps have them on a little bit more frequent recall because the time to intervene is really when they first become myopic, not sit and watch and wait and see it progress because it will. You've already kind of known they've progressed because they've been hyperopic, they've come through emotropia and they're now myopic. And that kind of shows you that trajectory of progression. So at the first you know, time they, that they need a correction for myopia, so it's often a minus 075, we often correct a, a young child so they could be six, seven years of age. I would start that myopia management at that stage. Because it'd be very hard to say to a child that is seeing very clearly, you need some spectacles, isn't it? It's just not how we've ever worked. Exactly. I think you would need really motivated parents uh, as well. And trying to get them to wear a, a spectacle or, or something for that, I think, is a hard task at the moment without that real evidence base behind it to back it up as well. In terms of then as they progress through and when you might stop at the other end, I think, you know, if you've got a child whose myopia has been stable, you know, for the last year or two, then you could think about taking them out of the myopia management intervention with the caveat that, you know, if that starts progressing again, we can put you back in. Because it seems to be effective you know, while a child is wearing that intervention. If it's an ortho-K lens, then you wouldn't necessarily be taking them out of the intervention at all, because it's a whole lifestyle change in terms of how they correct their myopia as well. And we've had, um, well, there were once children wearing my sight, for example, and I have you know, grown up, you know, started driving, managed to drive fine with the lenses, and they've stayed in them through their university years, because we know, again, that myopia can... In- increase or progress during those university years as well. So I think it's an, an individual conversation you have in terms of has that myopia stopped progressing? You know, if it has been stable for a while, then we'll monitor it. And if it changes, then we can put you back in an intervention. And when you're, you're talking of stability in practice, how do you measure that? Are you just relying on, on subjective refraction? Is it cycloplegic autorefraction? Should we be measuring axial length? So outside of the research lab, so we're just we're just on the high street. In clinical practice, you know, we talk to parents and children about change in prescription based on their, their change in spectacle prescription. Do they need an increased power of spectacle lens or, or contact lens? And it's altered basically in terms of if they have a, an improvement in acuity. And we often usually take three letters on a line of a, a logmar chart as a measure of improvement in their acuity. And we would change at that level. So I think it's fine in practice for you to be you're looking at that. Do they need a step change from one visit to the next as a marker of progression? We know the length of the eye will be increasing alongside that. If you have a biometer to measure axial length, then great, because that gives you a little bit more confidence in terms of what you're doing, but it shouldn't alter or really make a big difference to your management plan in terms of what you're doing in clinical practice. And should it be cycloplegia or not cycloplegia? I think the very first visit, you need a cycloplegic 
refraction doesn't have to be auto-refraction. It's always done that in the research study to reduce that kind of bias, but you could do it with your RET. But a, a cyclopedic refraction at that kind of first visit to make sure, you know, that kind of baseline level of myopia. And then, you know, that child gets older, more compliant, you're able to do your static distance fixation RET and have a good subjective, then, then that's appropriate to do that in practice. So I think as long as you have at least one baseline measure of cyclo is a good starting point, and then just look at your change in refraction. Thinking about those those practitioners that are, are yet to dip their toe into the water with, with myopia management, it doesn't sound like they necessarily need any special kit to get started, but um, what, what would you suggest to them? How, what's the easiest entry point on, on that journey? Should they be starting well, with spectacle lenses or contact lenses or a mix of both? Or? Yeah, I think there's a few different starting points. And, you know, we've got a range you know, different spectacle lens designs that you can bring in. You'll often find that children with myopia anyway want to want a contact lens for sports, especially, you know, at, at school. And I think both, you know, a, a soft contact lens for myopia management and the spectacle lenses are both an easy entry. And in terms of, you know, fitting, it's something like a, a MySight lens, for example, then you fit it just as a, a standard single vision lens. So there's no additional requirements um, needed. You fit in other types, then there's like a little online calculator to help you work out the power of the lens. In terms of the spectacle lenses, there's really good guides in terms of how, how you fit those lenses, but all within your competency as a, an optometrist or contact lens optician to be able to do that in clinical practice. I guess the only area where you might need some more specialist equipment would be for orthokeratology, where you need the topographer to map that cornea. And what about sort of um, gaining confidence to step forward and have those conversations? As Ian alluded to, it's a really sort of fast-moving topic and how do you keep up and yeah, where, where do you go to find out about myopia management if you're not already clued up on it? What do you read first? It is a fast-moving field and there's more and more evidence coming out, you know, certainly monthly um, you know, from the research um, environment as well. And I think if you are engaged with it, it's important to keep up to date because you can be sure that those parents are going to go home and read up a little bit more about it as well so and you know speak to you about it before conferences are always a great way there's a lot of information produced through your optometry today will often have articles reviewing that kind of latest evidence you could attend um you know many of the the conferences you know bcla will be more focused on contact lenses for um example you know college conferences often have different talks, presentations on, you know, myopia and the different interventions um, available. You could go online and you could look at the International Myopia Institute. And it's kind of a, a group of researchers, clinicians, partners from industry, policymakers from around the world that got together to produce some consensus papers. And there's a whole series of, of different white papers there that run through the different evidence space. And they also produce an annual digest where it kind of runs through the changes over that last year um, as well. Um, but just reaching out to different people working in that field, there's often active forums on, on social media as well that people can engage with. And certainly um, the majority of the different schools of optometry within the UK often have a, a myopia clinic as well as a, a research lab and often could be a point of contact as well. I think my challenge in practice was how do you communicate to parents and, and, and children? In, in my head, I didn't say this very often, but in my head it's, okay, your, your, your kid's myopic. They're almost certainly going to get worse. If we fit them with this contact lens, it might slow down the progression of myopia we don't know by how much or if it will work at all 
and we might not even know afterwards whether we achieve what we're aiming to. I always found sometimes I would deliver that really well in layperson's terms, and other times I'd make a complete hash of it. So I don't know, do you have a set script that you follow, or do you just... I don't have a set script because it really um, depends on the parents' level of knowledge. And, you know, if, if they're myopic, they're coming from a, a greater level of understanding than if neither parent has myopia. You're, you're starting with more basics. And I think, you know, the conversation naturally evolves. You know, if a child first develops myopia, explaining what myopia is and we can, you know, that's fine. They've, they've got it. We can correct it um, so they can see clearly is that first step. The next question is, is it going to get worse? And so often the parents will bring up that question and we can say, yeah, on our experience, it will typically progress from one visit to the next. And I keep it really simple in terms of short term gains. You know, we have a range of interventions that maybe may slow it down from getting much worse over over the next year and we can measure it from one visit to the next and parents often think about kind of that step change in prescription do they need a stronger pair of glasses each time they come and that's how often I typically break it down as to whether they need a stronger prescription at each visit or not. I don't tend to go into the, the longer term gains straight away in terms of ocular health and pathology much later in life because it's a lot for parents to take in in terms of if the child's just been diagnosed with myopia and then hearing it's likely to progress. So that's you know built in over time as it progresses and as we see if that intervention seems to be slowing it down. But I think all parents are you know keen to know if there is an option. And even if we don't or aren't able to predict exact outcomes for that individual child, I think they're keen to know that can they do something? They want to do the best for that child. And if you can say, well, this is what we know at the moment. This is what we think it's going to do. We can't promise that. We can't guarantee the outcomes. But based on our general evidence to date, this is what we think can happen. And if it doesn't seem to be working, then we could perhaps look at other interventions. And it's likely over time that new modalities will come on board that we can then bring to you as soon as we have those as well. So I think it's that evolving conversation. It's not just a one-time conversation. It's we go back and revisit it. You allow them to digest a little bit and, you know, speak a little bit more the next time they come. And I think as long as you're open about it, they're much more likely to be on board and, you know, just being really upfront about what we do know and what we don't know at the moment. Speaking of something that we may or may not know is... um... Do we know whether by slowing down the progression of myopia, we will actually prevent those pathologies that we're hesitant to list in front of parents that um, are statistically more likely in the high myope? So certainly in terms of the interventions we're using now, we don't have like 50 year data on terms of what's going to happen to eye health you know, at, at that later time. But there's been a lot of work, um, really recent work produced by Mark Bullimore and colleagues that have kind of looked, you know, coming back the other way, you know, if people with myopic maculopathy, if they had, you know, one diopter less myopia, what the likelihood of them having myopic maculopathy and visual impairment would be. So there's been work kind of, you know, starting that top end with pathology and coming backwards and looking at that data, that modelling data, that's really powerful in terms of doing something to slow down myopia progression is beneficial in terms of preventing you know, uncorrectable visual impairment later in life or reducing that risk of ocular disease later in life. The College of Optometrists have recently released some, some extensive guidance on myopia management and various resources. Do you think that's moved us on at all as a, as a profession? 
in terms of how we should be approaching myopia management in practice? I think as optometrists, we always look to the College of Optometrists for guidelines in terms of how we manage a whole range of conditions. So I think it's appropriate and important that they have updated their guidance in terms of myopia management. And I think that you know, they, they are supportive in terms of if you feel it's within your competency, then to, to go ahead and, and engage with it. And so I think that's important that we have access to those guidelines. And they run through, you know, the different interventions and our knowledge to date, where there's gaps in knowledge at the moment, and just really that importance of documenting what you're saying to the to the parents and the children and not to overpromise in terms of outcomes as well. Those guidelines have been quite important in terms of you now feel as a practitioner you have permission to, to do this in real life in practice because the college said you know, we ought to get involved now. Yes that's like a validation of what you're doing as well and I think that's good and I think for your regulatory bodies and you know bodies that produce guidance for optometrists as well, having that aligned with what you want to do in clinical practice is important. And does that put um, locums in a potentially tricky spot? So you, you may have a, a locum that's enthused about myopia management and that could be working in a, a variety of different settings. And some of those practices may be embracing myopia management and others might not be. But presumably the practitioner wants to, to offer that same level of care to all of their patients. So I can imagine they can get into a tricky spot by discussing myopia management in, in a practice where they haven't got an intervention to offer them. I think it's a, a discussion for the locum and, and the practice that they're working in up front as to kind of what their ethos is, what, what their you know general practice is, you know, do they discuss um, myopia management as part of their normal practice? And they can certainly talk about in terms of, you know, lifestyle and behavioural um, aspects as well. And, you know, if the practice doesn't offer that and the locum is really passionate about it, you know, is that the right practice they should be working in? And that probably happens right across other conditions as well, not just myopia as well. And I think something for them to, to discuss before they start working in a new practice. In terms of what you're currently working on, is it top secret or are you able to share any nuggets of the sorts of projects you're currently involved in? So I'm involved in a number of um, clinical trials for, for different interventions, you know, running, you know, looking at ways we can kind of enhance interventions or having data for the UK across a range of different interventions. Outside of that, we are looking at different, more mechanistic things related to myopia. And ultimately, you know, through that, are we able to kind of, is there kind of a test or, or something that we can measure for short-term exposure to something that would give us a better indication what might happen over a longer term. So is there a way if we can perhaps move to more individualised treatment based on you know a little test or measurement that we could do up front? And that's what I'm really interested in. So it takes away some of that thinking what might or might not happen. We can have a better predictor of, of what might happen over a longer term. And how do these, these projects come about? Is it you kind of come up with a, an idea and you think, oh, I need some money for this? Or do you get approached by people to say, oh, would you mind doing this trial for us? Or can you collaborate with another lab in a different part of the world? They come about in a variety of different ways. Some will be kind of hypothesis driven. We've got an idea, we've got a question that we think, can we answer it and look at it in a, from a different point of view? Um, and that's where many of those kind of mechanistic studies kind of result from. Is it a question we haven't been able to answer? We're trying to see if we can take different types of measurements or there's been different instrumentation. Can we alter that to, to measure something a little bit different in, in the eye? 
Um, some of the clinical trials results um, from a, a collaboration with industry partners. Some industry partners will approach us and ask us if we are happy to run one. And, and many of them are done in, in multi-centre as part of uh, sites in, in other parts of the world as well. And that's important really as well to get that sense of, you know, it's not just particular to this population, it, it's similar effects, you know, across a, a range of populations as well. But essentially all research requires funding. We run some studies right from, you know, elective studies and back to, to my interest in research really stem from my elective study involvement. And, and so setting up some pilot studies for our undergraduate elective students, uh, it, I think is really important to kind of engage them with research and hopefully instill in them a, a lifelong love of, of research. We both attended the International Myopia Conference re- recently. Is there anything that came out of that conference that, that, that really excites you? That's um, where, where, where do you think we're heading next? I think there's been a lot of talk at that conference in terms of the choroid and the role of, of the choroid and how that might regulate the growth of the eye and kind of alterations there and looking at different interventions and their impact on, on the choroid as well. And really then kind of mapping at um, receptor level, you know, what's happening at the different receptors. And we still don't fully understand, you know, what's triggering myopia and that whole kind of signaling cascade, you know, through. And can we start to identify or look at those differences? And I think that's kind of some exciting work that's come out of it. And then I think what's also we're starting to see more um, talk about different use of different light therapies and whether red light is um, particular of particular use and there's been some small studies done in in China for example using that and some of that's come into the, the media here um, in the UK and I think it's been used certainly in amblyopia treatment and my concern for that at the moment is that safety aspect you know how much of that laser light they're putting into the eye for how long and can you control it and if parents see it working do they increase that and the more the time that the child's engaged with that, but I've still got quite a lot of concerns as to how that might be regulating eye growth and, and the safety aspect related to it as well. But certainly I think, you know, from the IMC, there's a real sense of a need for collaborative working and larger data sets to get a, a, a real handle on some of these individual differences that we're seeing in terms of responses to the eyes to different modalities. So you alluded there to um, treatments being on the choroid. Do you think the future is going to be a pharmaceutical treatment really and does that mean we're going to need to all be IP qualified otherwise we all get left behind and we can't do the treatments? Certainly anything that might kind of you know alter that kind of signaling cascade may be pharmacological based. I think if a child's already myopic they need an optical correction anyway to see clearly and so you know the first port of call might often be a, an optical intervention because yeah, they might be wearing a pair of glasses or contact lenses anyway, and you might alter the design of that as a first option. I guess I see the future going as more a, a combination of interventions as well, because as we discussed earlier, we don't get full slowing of eye growth and myopia progression just with a one type of intervention. And so it may be different interventions that target perhaps different pathways within the eye that we see things moving forward. And you talked about IP qualification and atropine. I guess when I first qualified, atropine was on the, the list for all optometrists and it's come off. But that really low concentration of atropine is probably 
less detrimental to the eye anyway in terms of psychopentylate that we we, we typically use on a, a regular basis as well and I, I guess it's where we see the profession going and I guess IP is a real strength of the profession as a whole and so I would want more optometrists to kind of engage with that in, in the first place and whether those pharmacological controls for myopia also require IP I guess it's a evolving picture as to what they might be um, in the future and whether it requires it. Staying on the on the topic of pharmaceuticals, what whatever happened to the the metabolite of caffeine? Is it seven seven MX? There seemed to be some interesting stuff come out, and then it all went a bit quiet. At the IMC, there was a, a paper presented again with seven lethal xanthine um, in children. It's mainly been used in um, children in Denmark, and that's because the ophthalmologist um, involved with it is based there. So there was early kind of modelling work with it. Um, it seems to be that it does seem to slow myopia progression in children. They looked at the kind of the half-life of it and it seems to be they need like a double dosing um, throughout the day to try and slow that progression more than just a, a once a day dosing. And it seems to kind of alter the, the collagen structure in, in the sclera as a kind of mechanism of how it works as well. So, you know, we talked about choroid and changes there. And this is then in the sclera so it may be a multifaceted thing that we need to look at for myopia targeting, you know, whether it's retinal, choroid or, or sclera in terms of those changes that we're seeing. It certainly hasn't gone away. I, I think it's, you know, it could be extended more in terms of, of looking at that 7MX and where it might lead to. As a final thought, can we uh, ask you what you want to say to optometry about myopia? Is there anything you want to say to practitioners and um, to the professional bodies? even to government about myopia? I think for years we've just thought of myopia as really quite a benign condition that we can just correct it with a pair of glasses and we didn't really think about managing it at all. It was just a simple correction with single vision specs or, or, or contact lenses. I think the evidence base is still growing, but it's strong and it really shows that we can intervene and slow down that progression of myopia in the majority of children with either a different design of spectacle lens or a different design of contact lens or with uh, different eye drops um, at the moment as well. And given that wealth of information that we see, not just from the UK, but across the world that's growing, I think it's really is the time that we need to speak to you know, policymakers, we need to speak to funding bodies as well in terms of trying to integrate these interventions for myopia management to kind of be that kind of standard of care and that requires careful funding to be able to do that so it's accessible for all. I'm fully aware that you know the different designs of contact lenses and spectacle lenses it's on a, a private practice type basis at the moment and not funded by the NHS in the UK and I think we need to kind of move to look to see if we can have a funding model that allows you know all children to receive that benefit. Well, I, I think that's the perfect place to, to stop, Nicola. So thank you so much for, for giving up your time and, and expertise and featuring in OT's first ever podcast. Thank you very much, Ian and Kerry, for the invitation to, to speak with you today. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Our thanks again to Professor Nicola Logan for her time and insight. This is the inaugural OT podcast and as always we would welcome feedback from our members and subscribers but just be gentle we are very sensitive. We do hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making it and that you'll join us for the next episode. So from Ian and Kerry, thank you for listening.